Something that really surprised me as a foster parent is how complex foster parenting is. That's why I'm really thankful that I'm licensed by an incredible agency that goes above and beyond to make sure their foster families are supported. Most foster parents close their home within two years and many quit within their first year. So having extra support is really helpful. I don't think my partner and I would have made it past the two-year mark without our agency's support. Kids Crossing retains more than 80% of their foster families, and I'm really not surprised by this. Kids Crossing has provided us with many free services, including therapy for the kid in our care, parenting coaching, interesting online trainings, in-home family preservation services, and a home coordinator who acts as a buffer between us and the foster care system, and so much more. What's really great is that all of these services are offered in-house by Kids Crossing. So our child's team is all aware of our current challenges and successes, and they all use the same trauma-informed therapeutic model, which means we're all speaking the same language. It's a huge time saver to not have to find all of those services on my own, and it gives me more time to play with the kid in my care. So what are you waiting for? Kids Crossing welcomes diverse and non-traditional families. They have four locations across Colorado, in Denver, Colorado Springs, Pueblo, and La Junta. Learn more at kidscrossing.com. Hey, I just wanted to give you a quick heads up about today's episode. You may notice some background noise during the first half of the interview with today's guest, but she has some really incredible things to say. So thank you for sticking with us. I am the exception. Like it, it's very easy to want to hold up like a model youth or a model story and have that be the North Star for all youth everywhere. And that is just not fair. And, it, and it's really not the case because the fact of the matter is we haven't given youth the resources to do, you know, everything that I have done. I had a lot of angels that have helped me get through, but not all youth have that, especially youth who are aging out of the system on their own. Welcome to Just a Special, the place to learn more about foster care from diverse perspectives. I'm Natasha, a foster mom, and I'm really excited to bring you today's episode featuring someone who is no stranger to the spotlight. Sherelle Starr is a former youth in care and current foster care advocate. She's also a TV host in New York City and so much more. Our conversation takes many twists and turns, but centers around how we can better show up for kids in foster care, either as foster parents, volunteers, or advocates. Cheryl draws on her personal experience to give us all practical ways we can support kids in care and building a successful future for themselves. So let's dive in. To start, let's get to know Cheryl a little better. I asked her how her husband would describe her. Oh my goodness. Well, my husband's amazing. So he would use all of the adjectives to describe me. Uh, but he, he's a wonderful individual. But I'd probably say, you know, driven, hopefully kind. Uh, I'm trying to think of what else he might use. Focused. Uh, some of the adjectives he might use to describe me. <laughs> One thing that I've sort of observed, I think, as I have followed you on social media, read some of your articles, it just seems like you have a lot of joy. I do. I, I try to bring that to everything I do. It took me a long time to find my joy and, and be comfortable with sort of this sort of version of myself. And I, I just want to share that with everyone else. That's so beautiful. 
Do you mind sharing a little bit about what that journey was to find that joy? That can be really hard for anybody, but it can be especially hard for people who didn't have a stable childhood. Especially uh, in my younger years uh, and early in my career, you know, I was very just um, unhappy. I was very angry uh, a lot of times. And um, it really took self-reflection of like, is this sort of the person I want to be? And is this the weight I want to continue to carry for the rest of my life? And actually, you know, reflecting on myself and actually deciding that I didn't want to have to carry this baggage. I didn't want to be angry all the time. I wanted to live, you know, for the joyful moments. I wanted to live for the good that was in my life uh, and really sort of focusing in on that and sort of building that sort of life for myself where I could lay that baggage down. And of course, that, that wasn't just me just sort of saying it. That's me going to therapy and being able to talk about all the things that I sort of experienced experience in care, um, after care, when you're sort of left, you know, dealing with the baggage all by yourself. Uh, but really it was this moment of just sort of self-reflection of like, I am just tired, tired of carrying all this baggage and being angry. And I don't want to be that way anymore. Yeah. And I'm curious too, like, did you feel like it was one moment that you kind of were able to have a big breakthrough and put it down? Obviously, you know, it takes a lot of time and taking off the baggage little by little? Or do you feel like it's something that you continually do even today of like choosing like, nope, I'm not going to pick up that baggage today? I think it's continual. But what I will say is what sparked it for me was actually a friend. <laughs> um, one of my best friends uh, in the entire world. I think it was a sister. And, you know, being being a single woman in New York City, I it was going through sort of a, an interesting moment with this guy. And I said to her, you know, again, confiding in my friend, I'm like, you know, I think it's just, you know, my upbringing. I might be a little screwed up. And she's like, she like says to me dead on the phone, you have to stop uh, carrying your family's baggage. Like if you aren't happy in this relationship, then that's fine. But like, don't bring that to it. And like, it was a light bulb moment of just this person who I trusted, um, you know, completely of saying, you know, you are choosing to continue to carry that. Uh, and it literally changed the way I looked at everything um, in my life at that moment. And so that was sort of the catalyst for me saying, you know what, she is 100% right. Why do I continue to carry this? I don't have to. Um, but what I will say is like, it, it is a lifelong process and, and, and it's progress. You, know, you get those moments when you get frustrated and you have to take a step back and say, I am not going to deal with this in this type of way, or here are the things that I can't control in this situation. And so that's what I'm going to respond to instead of the negative. Um, so I think it's always, you're always growing with it and you're always having to sort of put yourself back in that moment of like, you said you wanted to lay this down. So this is one of those moments when you have to lay it down. So I, I don't think it's just a, a, a split second, you know, you decide to be different and then you're different. But I do think the the moments get easier and, and the interactions get easier once you make that decision. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. It's almost like a new muscle you're like working out. So like over time, it becomes more of a habit, maybe or a little more ingrained. Exactly. Just like exercise. You know, you have to do it a ton for it to become a habit. Well, thanks for sharing that because that's something that I really noticed a lot. And um, I think too, what you do a really good job of is like reminding people you're a full person and you're so much more than one thing, right? Like, even on your social media, it's like style tips and some of your other passions as well. Because I think it can be really easy for people to silo other people into you're this one thing, this one thing defines you. A hundred percent. You know, I'm not just a foster youth. I'm not just an advocate. I love fashion. I love beauty. I also love technology. Like I, I used to write for a couple of tech publications as well and business publications um, as a journalist. And so like I have all these different sort of interests and passions. I do a bunch of DIY projects like in my house. Um, you know, I'm not afraid of like a drill and like a, a circular saw. 
I have all these other passions that make up me. Uh, and so I think it's very important for people to see a well-rounded individual um, and that youth um, who are in care and youth who, who've aged out of care, you know, are well-rounded individuals. They can be if they have the right support systems. And that's what we should be wanting for them for their lives. Yeah. And transitioning into that, I know a lot of your advocacy work is focused on bringing to light difficult or quote unquote uncomfortable foster care and adoption issues. Can you tell us about the systematic racism embedded in the foster care system? The foster care system that we have today is basically built on, you know, the legacy of separating system you know, that indigenous we have people today is basically built tribes. on, um, and that's sort of what it, it's grown out of. So that that desire to separate them from their culture and who they were, and that's sort of the history and legacy of our current foster care system. Um, if we get into more modern day sort of the systematic racism that's built in, it really is breaking down and penalizing black and brown communities and communities that are poor um, and separating them from their families. And, and when, when, if you actually look at the numbers, it actually proves this um, just as a whole for every um, foster care system throughout the country. And so it's worth taking a step back to see sort of how we got here just based on just the, this, the racism that is built within our country. And this is just another place where it shows up um, where, you know, black and brown youth are taken from their families, you know, at exponential rates higher than, you know, white children are, that one of the leading reasons for uh, youth being removed from their home is actually not abuse. Um, So when we talk about sexual, mental, or physical abuse, it's actually neglect. Um, And then when you ask, well, what's that definition of neglect? It varies widely from county to county, city to city. And so it actually gets used as a reason or as a justification for removing youth who are, um, happen to grow up in families, again, that are black and brown or poor. And really it's something that we need to address. And what are the ways that you think it should be addressed? There's a lot of people talking about this, but one of the biggest ways is actually if we tackle the sort of neglect claims, um, I think it is, and I want to give you the right stat, I think it's 83% of cases uh, nationwide are neglect cases. Um, And a lot of those are due to, again, families being poor, coming from poor communities, coming from poor families. Well, instead of removing their child, if it's a case of a mom who lives in a terror apartment or house, shouldn't we help her find better housing? Um, If it's a family who needs to leave their child, their oldest child home to watch the younger kids, shouldn't we help them with childcare? You know, if it's a dad who's lost his job and is having trouble feeding um, his family and feeding his kids, shouldn't we help him sort of with that? Um, And so actually giving those um, subsidies um, and those grants directly to families who need them would make a lot more sense than removing children from their homes. No, absolutely. And I think, too, what comes hand in hand often with that systematic racism is the savior complex. Uh People coming in, you know, who maybe don't match the communities that they're trying to help. Yeah. That with a grain of salt, how you will. (laughs) Exactly. You know, and of course, there's many people who are doing an amazing job. But of course, there's so much room for improvement. And the system is broken. I think that's pretty widely accepted and acknowledged. But can you speak on that too? Because that can be so destructive and I think is one of the symptoms of the racism. A hundred percent. I think, you know, people assuming that the way they parent or the way they would parent is better than, you know, the home that these kids come from. And that is that savior complex, that belief that like what I'm doing is better because what they're doing is wrong. It must be. And that is just built in that you have built in blinders if that's sort of how you enter the the fostering system, if that's how you enter sort of wanting to help because you think you are better than the people who are experiencing it. Like, of course, you're going to create more damage. Of course, you're going to create more trauma. So being able to have that 
that personal self-reflection um, is really, really important because that's what helps sort of keep the system going. Um, and that's what keeps the blinders up because of course you you would never say that you're doing a bad job or that you know you couldn't um, maintain a household if you didn't have sort of the things that you needed to maintain household, money, food, um, a safe place to live. That is that savior complex, that belief that you are better um, is one of the reasons that this sort of system continues to endure. And is that something that you personally experienced when you were in the foster care system of families that you were going into? Did you ever like feel that savior complex directly? Yeah. I mean, I would say in my very, very first home, it's not anything that the person said, but just how they acted. I was like physically abused in my first home, just, just nonstop. And, um, I remember even being as a child thinking like I am being moved from a place where I was never abused. I was never yelled at. Um, I always felt loved and safe. And like here I'm being thrown into this home where like this person thinks that they're doing a great job. Um, And so like for me, I think um, the reason that is allowed to happen and that was allowed to happen is because there is this built in assumption that the foster parents who are signing up are better than the homes that these kids are coming from. And that's not always true. Absolutely. You've also written um, that foster care isn't a solution. It's a symptom of a problem. Can you explain that more for us? Yeah. And again, that's exactly what we're talking about right now. The foster care system as it stands today is really a symptom of, again, the systematic racism that has existed for generations in this country. Uh, but also it's a, a symptom of the fact that people don't actually uh, pay attention to the needs of youth. And we tend to not value those who we should be protecting. Youth who are the most vulnerable population that you can think of in our society, we just throw them away. We just ignore them. We don't ensure that they they are provided the very basics that our, our sort of society says that we will provide a child, which is love and support. Um, we just don't do that. And so I think the system um, is able to exploit that uh, pretty well um, with, you know, the number of terrible homes, just the, the number of, of cases that caseworkers get dropped on them, the active removals, number of removals of youth who, again, don't need to be removed from their home, but instead their homes need to be provided these additional resources. And so I think it's, it's a system of the way that we treat the most vulnerable in our in our society. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. These topics have so many layers on nuances and that's also right translates to the adoptee voices and I know you've also done a lot of work to help people see that you know an adoption isn't always just simply a beautiful thing. Can you talk more about how that perspective is really harmful when we're really reductionistic in our views of foster care and adoption? Yeah, I think, you know, we, again, reductionist is a great, great word for this. I think we tend to think about all of these super happy stories. And there are lots of super happy stories, uh, you know, about youth being adopted and who whose lives turn out really, really well. And that is all well and good. I and mean, we want more of that. Um, but a lot of times, um, you know, it, it's, it's or all times, we should always remember that adoption starts with a loss, very much like foster care. It starts with a loss. It starts with a youth um, losing um, their mom, their dad, like a partner. Part of who they are. And if you're not willing to deal with that initial loss, that initial trauma, and, and know that that is going to manifest itself at di- in different ways throughout the life of this individual, this child, all you're doing is, is exacerbating that trauma. Um, and so we have to be able to, to deal with that, to reconcile that, to have the conversation around that, um, that it does start with this loss, with this trauma. If we want to ensure that, again, we are, are, are taking care of the most vulnerable people in our communities. Mm, mm, yeah. And what are your thoughts on transracial fostering? And is that something you experienced yourself growing up in the system? Me personally, I, I don't believe that I 
did. Um, I, I'm thinking back of all the homes I, I was in, and I think they tended to be. I mean, I I, I grew up in black and brown communities, so I, I did have some Hispanic foster parents, and so I think of them as the same as black foster parents. Um, so yes, they were transracial in that regard. But I, I think when we tend to talk about transracial adoption or foster care, we're usually talking about a youth um, of color being placed in a white home in the the simplest terms. And so I was never placed in a white home that I can think of when I was in care. That being said, I am not against transracial fostering. I think as long as you take the time and dedicate yourself to understanding the culture of this child, uh, to understanding that you will need to be an advocate for this child, to understanding that there are things that you may not be aware of and that you have to learn, I think that transracial adoption is acceptable. I think that it it is needed. But I think uh, a lot of times people go in and just assume again with the savior complex that there's nothing for them to learn, that they know all that there is to know. And I think that is a the wrong way to enter this. And what other advice do you have for people considering becoming a foster parent? Like what life experiences do you think is really helpful for them to have before they begin this journey? I always say, um, you know, for parents and potential foster parents who are thinking about starting this journey, the three things I really think you should have is a, and be able to draw from, especially is a moment when someone was empathetic with you, uh, when they had to show you empathy and really think about what that felt like. Like, yeah, we always say we want to be empathetic individuals, um, but what does that feel like when you're on the receiver, receiving end of that? Um, yeah, it might feel good, but there I also might be these other sort of emotions of like frustration of like, do they really understand? where I'm coming from or are they just saying that? And so I think being able to draw from what it felt like to have someone empathize with you um, will give you a good sort of window and starter window to what a youth might feeling. I also think being um, being able to draw from a situation where things did not go your way is really, really important. So think about a time when you did everything right, you said everything right, you did all your plans and things still did not turn out the way you had hoped or the way that you wanted or the way that you planned. Think about the frustration that you must have experienced of knowing I am right in the situation, but still you're not going to get your way. It's not going to turn out the way you want. You have to deal with that every single day. Like the life that they are living is not the one they chose and they did nothing to deserve to be in it. Um, So being able to draw from that experience is also really good. And I think also um, another experience that is really important to draw from and that you should have if you're considering uh, fostering is a situation when, you know, you were in a power imbalance, when you needed to speak up for yourself to someone who had more power than you. Um, And that could be at work, that could be at church, um, that could be in your relationship, you know, but where there was that power imbalance, because that is another situation that youth are dealing with all the time and they have to make, um, you know, conscious and strategic decisions on, do I speak up about this? Do I not speak up about this? Will this, you know, harm something I want in the future or will it not? And so I think those three situations are definitely experiences that foster parents need to be able to draw from if they're going to take a youth into their home. And I can see that being so powerful because, I think a lot of times in foster parenting, maybe you could think like you're more integral to the story than you are, right? Like, oh, this must be something about me. Like this youth is angry or not listening or whatever. But to have that perspective of like, no, there's all these other forces at play in this youth's life. I could see that being really insightful. Do you have an example where a foster parent was able to really meet you where you were at based on their previous life experiences? So I actually have a really good uh, example. So uh, one of the foster homes I was in, I was in, you know, I moved schools and and we had to do this play about immigration. Um, I think in the 1920s, I was a really young kid, Um, but I remember crying because we had to have a costume. Uh, And obviously, you know, 
can't really, I didn't think I could ask my foster mom for a costume to, to be in this play. So I was crying in school and then um, I was crying at home and, you know, she asked me why. And, um, you know, I was like, well, we have to have a costume. And she's like, no worries. I will um, make you a costume. Uh, and so like she pulled out, you know, all of these clothes from her closet uh, and to sort of make me look like an immigrant from the 1920s to go along with this play that we were doing at, in school. Um, and, she got it all wrong. Oh, no. <laughs> she ended up, yes, <laughs> she ended up giving me apparently too nice of an outfit. I remember my teacher saying like, oh, well, you'll be the, the fanciest person on the stage. Um, but it still felt really good to one, not be left out. Like, even though it was, it wasn't what my teacher had envisioned, at least I wasn't, you know, the one not in a costume that day. And at least my, my foster parent met me where I was. Like, at least she took the time to sort of find out what was wrong, to sort of make do with what she had in the house um, and try to make me feel included. And so I think that is really important. I think foster parents put a lot of pressure on themselves um, to always get it 100% right. And sometimes just the trying and just like meeting the child where they are is more than enough. I remember that experience. It's one of the happiest moments in my life, like when I think back on it. Um, and again, I apparently I was the fanciest person on stage. <laughs> um, and so I didn't fit the play exactly, but like it still felt good to be included. It still felt good to be on stage. And it felt good to have someone in my corner. Maybe that's where your interest in fashion started way back then. <laughs> well, I trace I trace my fashion back to my great grandma, uh, but but I think but this is another fashion moment in my life, like where fashion like saved the day. <laughs> what I love too about that story is like she asked questions, and I think sometimes that's such an easy thing to do, but. When you're rushing through the day or thinking through a list of a million things you got to get done, that can be hard to remember to stop. Listen, really listen and, and ask those questions. Exactly. hundred percent. And then like, try to like do what you can. Like, I, I don't remember her having a ton of money if I'm being honest. Um, but again, she was like, we're, we're going to make this work. And she did. Being really resourceful. Exactly. What other advice do you have for making a child feel welcome in your home? And maybe like, especially those first few days, like, can you walk us through some examples of things some families did for you that made you feel like, yes, like I, I'm really welcome and safe here. Some things that I always talk about is not overwhelming the youth day one, because day one is a, is a struggle day. There is no way it cannot be a struggle day. Like a youth has just been removed from either their home or another foster home or a group home and just thrust into your care. And so like they are feeling very betrayed. If we're being honest, they're feeling very confused. And so try to not overwhelm them that first day. So if there is, you know, rules that you normally would follow, um, the first day is probably not the day to lay this out. Like, it's just not like that's the day to try to help them get comfortable, maybe show them their room, show them where their things go, um, maybe make a nice dinner. But like, that's not the day I think to overwhelm them. Um, I think the first night, you know, think asking them questions about uh, traditions or rituals or routines that they have. So what time do you normally go to bed. And obviously if they say midnight, you know, well, that's a little late, but if, you know, <laughs> but you know, what time do you normally go to bed? And are there shows that you normally watch on Monday evening or Tuesday evening? Um, you know, are, do you normally bathe at night or in the morning? You know, I, it's, you know, you want to continue the routines that they had, you should introduce new ones. But again, the first night may not be the best night for that. So I think getting 
getting them comfortable and ensuring and letting them know that they can continue the routines that are positive and productive is really, really important. And then I think like, you know, when we get into day two, day three, I think laying out the rules um, and expectations of the household is really important. Um, you know, a lot of times and in myself included, I'd be in foster homes and I'd be always on eggshells of afraid I was going to do something wrong because no one told me what I was allowed to do versus what I wasn't allowed to do. And then also, you know, being open and actually having a conversation for what things these youth like doing and have done before. Um, one of the things I missed just like crazy when I was in foster care was being able to cook. I always cooked with my great grandma. I cooked from a very, very young age. And it was one of those things that I wasn't allowed to do in any of my, you know, foster homes because everyone assumed I was too young and it was too dangerous. And, but I grew up cooking. Um, and so like to take that away from me, when it is, it's crazy. It's absolute crazy. It's something that would have been able to help me build routine. So having the conversations of, do you like to help to cook? Do you like helping setting the table? Have you done it before? Can I show you how? Don't make a assumptions about youth and, and limit them and their possibilities. So I think those are some of like my first day tips. I love the like not making assumptions piece too. And then also acknowledging that it is a new life merging in your home, right? So you can't expect them to completely merge into your old way of life. I think it's really more a um, kind of like, let's meet in the middle here and take whatever pieces. It's almost like a melding of cultures, right? Exactly. Um, exactly. Mm-hmm. You're joining together a hundred percent. Like they are coming into your life and you're coming in their life and, and you have to figure out how you're going to coexist together. Another thing I've noticed as a foster parent is on the first few days, it can be hard for youth to remember things. And mm-hmm. I think looking back in my own life, when I've had very shocking or traumatic experiences, my memory is also not running a hundred percent. You're just yeah. kind of in survival mode. So that's something that I've continually reminded myself is like, okay, just because I outlined certain things on the first mm-hmm. few days, I definitely expect to continue to have to do that. Um, just because they're having to absorb so much information, right. In such a short amount of time. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, youth are going to say yes, yes, yes to everything. But yeah, they're in survival mode. That's 100% correct. And so you're going to have to remind them and you can't get frustrated because they don't remember that one thing you said on day two and it's day eight. Like day two, they were just making sure you weren't going to kick them out of the house, if we're being honest. That's a really good point. So maybe even it would make sense to like revisit the rules maybe after a few weeks. And, and do it in a positive way. Like, hey, I noticed you've been, you know, making your bed every day and, you know, tidying your room. I'm so proud of you. But you, hey, you haven't been doing X. So I just want to make sure you remember to do X. Like, you know, give them positive encouragement as you're saying this. Everything doesn't always have to be a negative. Like, oh, you forgot this and I'm so upset. Like, they are trying. One of the most intimidating parts of foster parenting for me was when my home was investigated for child abuse by the Department of Human Services. When I was in foster parent training, they told us that if you foster long enough, it's not a matter of if you will be investigated, it's a matter of when. So how did my partner and I get through it? Honestly, it was a huge relief to have our agency support during that time. Kids Crossing is a private foster care agency in Colorado. And they had our home coordinator explain the process to us, and she was available to be present during our interviews. Kids Crossing even followed up on our case with child welfare so they could keep us updated. It was a huge relief to feel like we weren't going through the process alone. But to be completely honest, it can feel pretty discouraging to be investigated for false allegations after all the support you've provided as a foster parent. 
So it was also really encouraging to have our home coordinator repeatedly check in with us and normalize the experience for us. And knowing our agency could help us legally if needed was a huge stress reliever. Kids Crossing even sent us a thank you card to help us celebrate our home being opened up again. Kids Crossing welcomes diverse and non-traditional families. They have four locations across Colorado and Denver, Colorado Springs, Pueblo, and La Junta. Learn more about how you can become a foster parent at kidscrossing.com. So can you tell us a little bit like how your transition looked like into adulthood? Did you ultimately age out of the foster care system? Were you able to be reunited with your family before that happened? How did that look like for you? Yeah. So I was actually reunited with my mom. And so uh, I didn't age out of foster care. So I was reunited with my mom and lived with her for a few years. And then I ended up getting a scholarship to go to boarding school. So I only lived with my mom for a couple of years before I went to boarding school. And then from boarding school, I went uh, straight into college. And so um, my I would say my sort of path into adulthood just looked very different um, than, than a number of youth because of the boarding school sort of um, uh, factor and then, then going straight off into college. Um, and so, you know, it, it, my journey into adulthood just looked very different, but that being said, I think there are just these elements, uh, that are, are true for, for youth who, um, either reunify or, you know, end up uh, aging out on their own. And, and that is that sort of, tension that exists of, of trying to adapt to sort of this new world that you're put in. You know, my mom and I butted heads when I was reunified. There was no sort of therapy session for us on how to live together. And there was no one checking in uh, to make sure that that this was a thriving environment for me. And, and my mom did a very good job. I don't want to make her out uh, to seem like she didn't, but like that was a another sort of traumatic experience for me because I actually hadn't lived with my mom before. I, I went into foster care after living with my great grandmother. Uh, and so no one had taken that into account that I had never actually lived with this person before. Oh, wow. um, and so like, you know, there wasn't really a history there of, of sort of, you know, us being together and being a family. And so that was really hard. I was also very used to taking care of my baby sister. And so ever since she had been born, I'd been taking care of her in, in foster homes. And so like to go in and suddenly be told that like, I'm the child. It's like, I, I've been, I've been bathing her and giving her bottles and feeding her and like dropping her on a daycare since I was like six. Like, um, you know, it's, it's very, it was very hard. It was a hard transition for me. And so going off to born school ended up being a very good uh, situation, not only for myself, but for my mom, because she could be that in that motherly role for my sister. Um, so it was a good sort of break for us. And so did you enter the foster care system at six? And then what age were you reunited with your mom? Uh, I, so I entered the foster care system, I think around, yeah, five or six. And then I was reunited with my mom around 11 or 12. And so I was in foster care for like five or six years. And then you went to boarding school at what age? At 14. 14. Okay. Yeah. And I think too, it's like important to bring up too, you have a very successful career. And I'd love to hear too how um, you were the first in your family, right, to graduate from college. And it sounds like too, you were able to break a lot of cycles, right, in your family. Yeah. How do you think you were able to do that? I always attribute a lot of my life um, to my great grandmother and just being loved by her when I was really young. And that being sort of my first home environment, I, I, my time in care was a little different from youth in that I, I knew why I was in care. Um, I didn't know how long I was going to be in care, um, but I knew I was going in care because my great grandma got sick. Um, and so like having that in the back of my mind, there was never this doubt that I was wanted. 
I didn't have the same sort of um, barriers to education. I always felt school was my safe place. I loved school. Um, it's where I felt encouraged. And so I didn't have that initial like barrier of like, I'm not wanted. I can't go further. Um, I just like absorbed all the like support from like my teachers throughout the years. Really, that is sort of what pushed me through. I always loved school. It, it was where I excelled. Um, and so when I got the scholarship to go to boarding school, it was like, yes, let me do this. Um, and, and, and yeah, that, that sort of like, that was my passion. I was able to sort of always want to go to the next step. I wanted to continue in school because I always wanted to sort of have that affirmation um, and that sort of encouragement uh, that I was getting from, from my teachers. And what are some of the ways that your teachers really showed up for you? Uh, oh my God, my teachers were angels, like absolutely just like uh, amazing angels throughout my life. Um, I can give you the example of, um, I was always in the gifted program, even though I was moved around and my teachers were very sort of sneaky in some of the situations and how they made that happen. I remember one time my teacher coming up to me um, and I'd been in her class for a week. I had just been moved to a new home and of course I need a new school. Um, and she's like, you're going to go, I, and I don't remember the actual teacher's name, but you're going to go to Mrs. Smith's class starting next week. Um, but I'm going to give you all your report card. And of course, Mrs. Smith's class was the uh, gifted class. And so like my teachers would just make a way for me um, without going through official channels. Like literally the teacher that gave me my report card wasn't the classroom I was in. Um, but they, I, I guess they didn't want to deal with the administration or what have you. And I, I so appreciate them for that because I have to assume that they were going to get pushed back. Um, but like things like that, my teachers just always made a way for me, um, letting me come into class super early. Um, I remember they used to have morning, like after school programs and pre pre date programs. I could come in the school before that. Like I remember getting to school at like seven a.m. Um, and my teacher would just give me, you know, things to work on, or I'd help them in the classroom, like anything to keep me out of like when I was in bad homes, keep me out of the home itself. Um, and so literally, I, I wouldn't be where I am without sort of the support of my teachers. And so I am so thankful for them. And again, they just made made a way for me. That's so beautiful. And I think it's something really important to remember, too, that in order for any kid to thrive, right, a community is really needed. And it's no different for kids in foster care. It's not just foster parents making a huge difference. It has to be, you know, a community coming around people. Um, is there a specific teacher that really sticks in your head um, besides the one that gave you your report card? That's pretty awesome. <laughs> Here's another one. Um, so I um, had terrible vision when I was a, a child. I, I mean, well, I still had terrible vision. I got LASIK a few years ago, thank goodness. Um, but like for the first, I don't know, six years of school, um, on my report card, every like quarter, I would get the little note from teachers like, hey, Sherelle can't see the board. Sherelle is squinting. I had to move her to the front of the class, but maybe you should get her eyes checked. Like I remember reading this on my report card because I could never see. However, no one took me to get glasses. No one took me to get my eyes checked in all of the homes I lived in. Um, but just teachers just moving me to the front of the class because clearly at home, no one's reading their report card and no one's coming to parent teacher night for me to tell them that like she needs classes. So let me just move her to the front of the, the room so that she can actually see the work that needs to get done. Um, so it's those little things of like sort of the teachers sort of um, making the way for me and sort of like helping me get through. Um, you know, it's such a simple thing. Like, of course, you should shake the child to get their eyes checked. You know, you're supposed to do it yearly, but I didn't get it done until I was in sixth grade. Wow. Wow. That's just so crazy. Um, and it sounds like your teachers were really seeing you in a way that like these families weren't taking those extra steps. 
Exactly. Taking the time to, to like do what they can. Like they can't do anything for me outside of the classroom, but in the classroom, they were there for me. Yeah. And I know some people might hear your story too and be like, oh, wow, you know, see like any kid that spent time in foster care, like they can obviously become successful. They just try hard enough. But I think it's really important for people to remember that your story is the exception and not the rule. Can you talk about some of the work that you do specifically um, where you live in New York City to really advocate for youth aging out of the system and why you feel that that's so important? Oh, it's, 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 it's incredibly important. And, and I always try to remind people, like, again, like you said, I am the exception. Like it, it's very easy to want to hold up like a model youth or a model story and have that be the North star for all youth everywhere. And that is just not fair. Uh, and, it, and it's really not the case because of the fact matter is we haven't given youth the resources, um, to do, you know, everything that I have done. Like I, again, I had a lot of, um, angels that have helped me get through, but not all youth have that, especially youth who are aging out of the system on their own. Um, when youth age out, they get, I think, what, $800? And, then, and sorry, this is, let me be specific. This varies by state. Some youth get nothing. Some youth get $300. Um, some youth get a voucher. It just depends on what state you live in. Um, but usually they get not enough to pay for an apartment. <laughs> um, they usually they, they are aging out without um, a resume, without job experience. They're aging out to homelessness. Uh, 50% of youth who age out are homeless within two years. Um, and so it's very, very important to uh, understand that we are not giving youth the resources they need to live a successful, independent life and to thrive and be successful. Um, so a lot of the advocacy work I do um, in working with organizations is really to help sort of bridge that gap and ensure youth are getting these resources, ensure that people are hearing about the things that they are not getting, which should be standard um, for a child that is aging out on their own. Uh, and so, you know, I work with an organization called City Living um, in New York City. I volunteer on their board and they help youth, again, who have aged out of care and are moving into their first apartment, actually keep that apartment because, okay, you are one of the, you know, 100 to get an actual apartment in one of the most expensive cities in the the world. Now you need a job. Um, now you need to know how to budget your money. Now you need to know how to like, you know, pay for things that you'll need from food. Like you've never been taught how to cook. That's a shame, but now you need to learn this. Um, and so actually ensuring that they get the skills that they need to actually live productive, successful lives independently. Um, and that's what they're not getting in foster care. And it's an absolute shame and it's an action. It should be a crime. You mentioned how many youth end up homeless. Another stat that really shocked me that I feel like really should be talked about a lot more is the percentage of youth who end up dead within a few years of leaving the mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. I've had teens in care in my home. And sadly, I can see how that could be a reality because you're just pushing people who have limited life skills out into the world. And it's a real tragedy. And it is really unfair. It's so unfair to them. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's, again, it should be criminal that, you know, what we say in, in, um, foster care is in local parentis, right? Like in, in place of your parents, um, the state is acting in place of your parent. What good parent will just turns a child out at 18 knowing they have no place to go? No life skills, no support system, no resources. Like, oh, too bad, so sad. You haven't done your job. You failed as a parent. Absolutely. And then just with the cyclicalness of the foster care system, I think that's also another, another evidence, right? That this really isn't working is kids in care often grow up to become parents and then their kids end up right back in the foster care system because they never got the chance to know what a healthy family or healthy parenting even looks like. 
Exactly. Exactly. They didn't have the support systems um, to learn the things they needed to learn again to be successful, to live independent lives. And when I talk about successful, it doesn't need mean that you need to go to college or go travel the world. It just means that you get the opportunity to live the life that you want to live on, on your terms and be happy about it and to have the support systems and the resources that you need to do that. That's what a successful life looks like. So if someone's listening and they're like, you know what, I'm not ready to become a foster parent right now, what advice do you have for them for getting involved? Uh, advocate, um, be an advocate. Uh, I can almost guarantee you um, that in your city or in your state, youth are being overlooked. I 100% can guarantee you that. Ensure that you know your um, representatives, your senators, your governors, your mayors aren't overlooking the youth in your community. Make sure that um, all of the services that they need, um, they're being given. Making sure that you know the the CASAs and the nonprofits in your organization are being given the n- money they need to support you. Being an advocate, number one. Number two, this being a, a community support, maybe for foster parents in your area. I think it's so important. And, and I want to be clear, there are some really really amazing foster parents out there um, who are in this for the right reason, who are every day are trying to help youth. They need your support. You can sign up to do respite care for foster parents who need a break, um, you know, on the weekends or, or maybe for a week. Um, so that's a really important thing that you can do. You can volunteer to drive um, youth to uh, appointments or uh, doctor's appointments or um, to, uh, to, to cases um, when they need to go into court. Um, there's so many things that you can do. Yeah. And I would say someone listening might be like, oh, how can me driving someone to an appointment or providing respite care really make a big difference? As a foster parent, I can say it makes a huge difference in my life when someone will take him to an appointment. The kid in care in my home, his CASA picks him up every week Mm -hmm. um, from school one day a week and then uh, hangs out with him and drops him back off at home. I mean, that's huge for me. It allows me to work for an extra few hours or go work out. And um, just having that break and knowing that he's in good hands and he's um, developing a relationship with another trusted adult is huge. How amazing is that, right? So these little, exactly. these things that can seem so little really make a massive difference, I would say. Exactly. For the people who are actually, again, spending the time for the foster parents who are putting in the work, like they need a break. Any parent who, who's got parent, grandparents who can come and take their child for a weekend will tell you the value of having just some downtime, of some me time, and how important it is for their mental health. Um, so if you can be that person for a youth, uh, for a foster family, I, I 100% would recommend signing up. And then you also mentioned, uh, Natasha, being a CASA. Um, signing up to be a CASA, to be a mentor, to be a role model in a youth's life is so important. And so many cities across the country are short CASAs. So many cities need more CASAs to sign up. So if you have the time to volunteer to be a CASA, that is 100% needed. Yeah, for sure. So let's transition more into how does your life look today? Can you tell us like, what does your relationship look like now with your mother and sister? Walk us through that. My uh, relationship with my mom and my sister are really good. I will say they are probably non-traditional in that, you know, I don't talk to my mom all the time. I talk to her maybe, you know, once or twice a month, but it, it's a very good relationship. I love my mom. Um, she's down in Florida doing the Floridian thing, you know, with the beaches and the pool and all of that fun stuff. But she's living a really, really good life and I love her. Um, but, it, you know, it's a very positive relationship. But again, I think it's a little non-traditional again, just based on when I was reunified with her and then just sort of the fact that I was very independent and I still continue to be very independent. Um, and she She's, you know, pretty independent herself, but that's what works for us. My sister is amazing. She actually just got married last year. Uh, and so she's a newlywed still, and uh, she lives in the city. Uh, and so, you know, I, 
probably see her, although for pandemic, I haven't seen her recently, unfortunately, um, just because we've been playing it safe. Um, but, you know, prior to pandemic, you know, I'd see her a couple times a year. Um, and uh, my sister's doing really, really well. And we have a really great relationship. Um, again, non-traditional, you know, I, 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 it was hard, I think, for me, especially to go um, from being like her provider to just being a sister. I, like that is a, a very, you know, strange and, and a relationship to sort of have with your, your sibling. But I love my sister with all my heart and I know she loves me. And so we just have a very different relationship, but one filled with love. I mean, it's so beautiful how it seems like in a lot of your life, you've really tackled things in a very creative way and just had that openness to, all right, things maybe not be, might not be how society usually defines them or maybe the most ideal, right? But how can I make this something that still is beautiful and brings me joy? Exactly. And, and understanding that, you know, different relationships are, are different for different people. And, and it doesn't have to be the way society, you know, expects it to be as long as it's a positive relationship for you. Mm-hmm. Do you keep in touch with any of your uh, former foster families or former teachers? So one teacher I did, unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago. But uh, but as far as the, the foster parents know, um, and just because I, I didn't have any information on them, I have done like the, you know, the Facebook like sleuthing, uh, but I haven't been able to like find them um, for the ones that I would want to keep in touch with. Um, but so I'm not in touch with any of them. Yeah, no, it can be so hard when you're just moving, moving, moving to retain that. I think that's another one of the losses inherent in the system. Yeah, you don't remember names. I, a number of foster parents I, I live with, and I'm like, I just don't remember their last names. And so like, I couldn't find them if I wanted to. We've tried to keep in touch with um, kids who come into our home, even if it's just for like respite, but sometimes it's hard. Mm-hmm. What is some of the stuff that brings you joy in your day to day? So my husband, he's incredible. You know, I, I love what I do. I love my job. Um, I love my friends. Uh, my friends have really become, you know, my family in my life. And, and I love all of them, my girlfriends especially. I play tennis. I, I learned to play tennis in high school. I used to play competitively. And um, during pandemic, I, I've taken it up again. And, and it just brings me so much joy to be playing. Like, we don't play enough as adults. Like, we just don't play. Uh, and it's just so much fun to just play tennis um, and, and just, you know, have a game and play a match. Um, and so those are just some of the things that just bring me joy and on, on a regular day. That's such a good point that as adults, we don't find enough time to play because it is so stress relieving. And then especially you know, as a foster parent with kids, it's a huge way to connect and let them know, you know, that they're safe. It's just a great way to like build a bond. So I kind of try to remind myself to be like more silly and playful whenever yes. possible. Exactly. Whenever possible, you need that. Like it, it's just a break from the world with that moment when you're just having fun and you're laughing and, um, and, and you, you just to get to have, you're just having a good time. Like it's so important for us to have that in life. I mean, I'm not a doctor, but I prescribe it at least once a day for everyone listening. Um, you just need to play and be silly and have some of those moments in your everyday. Based on what we can see from your life too. Like, you know, you're a very busy person. You've been through a lot. Like there's no excuse not to find that joy, right? Exactly. I mean, if we've learned nothing in the last like two and a half, three years, like life is not promised to you. Um, So find that joy, figure out what it is for yourself and try to do more of it. Oh, something that you mentioned that I also want to circle back to is your love of fashion from your great grandmother. Can you tell us a little more about that? 
Yes. <laughs> she was amazing. She was absolutely amazing. I loved her so much. <laughs> My great grandmother, I just remember her having just the most amazing clothes. Um, she had all of these like long dresses and gowns just in her closet. And she let me like dress up in them when I was really little. And I really think that is where I, I discovered, I know that's where I discovered my love of fashion because she was just such a fashionable person. I remember her, you know, dressing up. She'd wear like these like suits to go to the doctor. Uh, and she just always looked so like good and so like grown up um, in my eyes. And I, I just really always wanted to like emulate that. I, I, I always like love that about her, just her sense of style. Um, and so that's just something that stuck with me um, and something that I try to sort of bring out in my everyday. I love fashion. I love working in fashion. I love being able to talk about the trends on TV um, and, you know, share trends with like my followers. Um, it's just one of the things I love. And then you also mentioned too that you um, cooked with her a lot. Like what are some of the things that you would make together? I was very, very young. Um, and so, you know, I would, I remember um, my first thing I remember making is eggs. So she taught me how to make scrambled eggs um, and sunny side eggs. And so I got really good at making eggs. Um, we would do a lot of fruit salads together where I would slice up the fruit. Um, we'd also do chicken, uh, a lot of baked chicken. I just got to help in the kitchen. She'd give me a, a butter knife uh, to like help cut stuff. And so I, I just learned to cook with her and I just le loved being in the kitchen and being around like the smells and the scents. And I remember her being a very good cook. Um, and so just having that experience of, of someone letting you try and letting you learn and, you know, tasting the things that you make uh, was just such a good, rewarding experience for me. And I, it's one of the things I love doing with my nieces and nephews. Uh, when they come over, I will cook with them. I teach them how to like make vegetables and like put seasoning on, um, you know, and it's always like, you know, age appropriate sort of steps that I let them do. But it's just one of those things that I'm happy to be able to pass on that I got from her. Yeah, I think the cooking thing is huge too. I think especially too, when a new kid comes into my home, you know, I will have them help me cook if they're interested in it the first few meals, because that kind of gives them an ownership too over what we're eating. And exactly. Yeah. And I think it can also, you know, like you're very stressed when you're in a new home as anyone, even as an adult, if you had to like move randomly. Right. I mean, it's stressful. Mm -hmm. No one likes moving. So I think it too reduces some of that stress around what we're eating. Right. Like what are you putting in there um, when they're able to see it and have some ownership over it and even make some decisions, maybe even like, oh, what vegetable are we going to add? It gives them choices um, that they get to, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to be afraid of something that you made yourself <laughs> um, or to refuse something that you made yourself. So, you know, a little trick there, uh, we'll have them help you make it. But also like I, cooking just teach you so many like lessons, like you, what happens if you put too much or too little in something like just so many lessons that you can take from like being in the kitchen. And again, it just makes you really comfortable to see like, I don't always do everything right. You know, at, even as an adult, like, oh, oh shoot, I forgot this spice. Like it's good for them to see that, that, you know, they don't always have to be perfect and like still things get made and things get done, but it's a very important thing for them to witness and experience and be part of. Yeah, I know that's so important. It's a good metaphor for life. Like you're saying, like, just kind of figure it out as you go. Yeah, like, oh, out of this, let's try this. Let's see what this tastes like. You know, I, I, you can have a lot of fun and, and teach them a lot just by doing. And this is sort of an aside, but I heard that there was a study recently that children are more depressed now than ever before. A lot of it is because kids aren't being able to have those experiences, whereas, you know, parents in earlier generations were much more okay with kids taking risks, right? They would like go ride their bikes for hours at a time until sunset and then they'd have to come home or so many kids, like you're saying, aren't allowed to use a kitchen knife. 
Right, and, right. Like even a butter knife. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm so confused. Right. And it just makes them feel so disempowered. And they don't get to ex- experiment um, and experience things on their own. I, I, I am not surprised by that study, like at all. I remember in, in boarding school, um, one of the ways, and I was a scholarship kid, but one of the ways um, I would make money um, to pay for things was I would do other people's laundry. Um, yes, there were really wealthy kids who didn't want to do their laundry. And there were some who just didn't know how. Literally, like, did not know how to wash their clothes. Um, and so, like, <laughs> what are we doing to the next generation when they are, are coming, you know, supposed to be independent individuals and they don't know how to clean up for themselves or, or wash their own things? Like, that's a shame. So any ways you can find to empower kids, especially kids in care, I think is so important because, like you mentioned before, too, just that idea that, you know, there is that power dynamic all the time. And how can you help them? feel more confident in themselves, I think is huge. Exactly. Especially knowing that there is a, a chance that they are going to end up on their own. Like, you know, a, a five-year-old that you have in your home, like hopefully everything works out. But again, the way our system is set up, it might not. And they may age out on their own. They need to learn how to cook. They need to learn how to clean. And so you are, again, the adult and the parent in the situation. And so it's your job to help teach them these things. So do you have anything else to add? that you'd like to touch on? I think we, we touched on a lot. And I, I think, you know, we, we've talked on all of the things that are wrong with the system. Um, but just calling out what is right. And it's it's the foster parents who day in and day out take in youth and are taking them in for the right reason because they want to help. Um, and, and, they, and they know um, that, you know, youth are in an unfair situation and they want to advocate and ensure that um, whether it be being reunified with their, their parents or whether it be staying in care, um, that they are going to advocate for what's right for their youth. And I am so thankful for, for those foster parents, caseworkers who have tons and tons of cases. Again, the system is broken and they shouldn't have all these cases, but the fact of the matter is they do. And you know, those who show up day in and day out and try to make a way for their youth and again, try to advocate. So just being reminded that there are good people who are trying to make a difference, um, but they need more people to pay attention. So if you are not in the system, if you're not a caseworker or a social worker or a foster parent, and you want to figure out how to help supporting those who are is really important and advocating for them is really important. I so enjoyed my time with Sherelle and found her joy contagious. And I hope you're feeling more uplifted as well. And I hope listening to our conversation helps you feel more empowered to support kids in foster care in your own community. If you want more, you can find Sherelle on Instagram at Sherelle Star. That's C-H-A-R-E-L-L Star. Or visit her website, SherelleStar.com, where you can see her published work, including articles on topics such as helping kids deal with racial injustice and much more. That's a wrap. As always, we love hearing from you. Please give Just a Special a follow and review on Apple Podcasts as it truly goes a long way in helping our show raise foster care awareness. And be sure to visit our website, justaspecial.com, for more foster care resources. This podcast is produced by Kelton Reed and New Media Dojo. Something that really surprised me as a foster parent is how complex foster parenting is. That's why I'm really thankful that I'm licensed by an incredible agency that goes above and beyond to make sure their foster families are supported. Most foster parents close their home within two years, and many quit within their first year. 
So having extra support is really helpful. I don't think my partner and I would have made it past the two-year mark without our agency's support. Kids Crossing retains more than 80% of their foster families, and I'm really not surprised by this. Kids Crossing has provided us with many free services, including therapy for the kid in our care, parenting coaching, interesting online trainings, in-home family preservation services, and a home coordinator who acts as a buffer between us and the foster care system, and so much more. What's really great is that all of these services are offered in-house by Kids Crossing. So our child's team is all aware of our current challenges and successes, and they all use the same trauma-informed therapeutic model, which means we're all speaking the same language. It's a huge time saver to not have to find all of those services on my own, and it gives me more time to play with the kid in my care. So what are you waiting for? Kids Crossing welcomes diverse and non-traditional families. They have four locations across Colorado, in Denver, Colorado Springs, Pueblo, and La Junta. Learn more at kidscrossing.com.